Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am Andre Krankov, one of your hosts. I am a freshly minted PhD graduate from Stanford, and I'm now working at an AI startup. And people can't tell, but he does have that French, freshly minted PhD graduate smell. So that's a really nice thing. Yeah, I'm officially um, <laughs> a doctor, so that makes me fancy now, you know. That's true. Like, I was asking him about a skin condition that I have a minute ago, and he was he was super helpful. It was Everyone really just like... treats me different now because they know, <laughs> you know. Is there a doctor on the plane? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm Jeremy. I'm, um, I'm your other co-host. I, uh, I'm work on AI safety type stuff, um, AI alignment, technical safety, some AI policy things as well, um, kind of on the uh, sort of existential catastrophic risk side of things. And um, I'm also nursing a cold right now because I came back from London uh, with a from a very, very busy trip uh, working on stuff and I have an exotic British disease. So that's fun. Um, mm, yeah, well, yeah. Don't, uh, don't trust uh, that area of the world. And uh, for regular listeners, we didn't have an episode last week. That was pretty much the reason. And this one is going to be a little bit quicker than usual, just because we have a, a lot of work going on. It's a busy time. Yeah. But hopefully past this week, we will go back to our regularly scheduled programming going forward. Definitely. And yeah, let's just go ahead and dive in, I think. So in tools and apps, we have just one major story, which is that Google extends generative AI search to places, products, and virtual models. So as we've been discussing, Google has been adding a lot of different AI bits very quickly to you know, various products. Now it's, it's expanding its generative AI search to include tourism and products, as well as these virtual models for trying on clothes. So we have this surge generative experience, which generates AI answers, uh, answers with additional questions and selects human written sources uh, instead of just displaying relevant websites. So it's sort of like that kind of preview answer that they had in the past, I guess, but now AI powered and, and much better. Yeah, it seems like a more natural way to interact with these systems too. Like they give an example where people use the search bar and they type in something like, what do people say about Chicago? Is it worth visiting? And you know, you see this kind of like uh, generative search response that we've now kind of gotten used to with Bing Chat and the regular search responses below which I thought was kind of interesting from like a costing and economic standpoint too, because it's like, you know, this is really going to be adding a lot of expense. Like generative search is more expensive than just like standard search and kind of makes you wonder like, how does this shift the economics? How much does a Google search cost with this sort of thing? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that side of the equation. Obviously, it's a little, a little early to know what the uh, trade-offs are going to look like, but that definitely seems to be a, an aspect of this. Yeah, as we've discussed, it's it's a major question. Either Google just takes a huge hit uh, to its revenue, and and really, like as far as we can tell, when you're doing one of these generative uh, searches because you're using the AI, it's no longer profitable just via ads. 
to do right. it. So you're losing money if you're doing AI. So either the ads will have to be a lot better or we'll have to be a paid tier potentially, which is kind of crazy to imagine, right? But it's from a tools and apps perspective for now, as users, we don't need to care about it. But I think soon enough, this question will rear its head again. Yeah. And like how clearly can ads be delineated from just like helpful content too? That's kind of an interesting thing. We've seen Microsoft play with, with um, Bing chat, right? Where they kind of had these like citations and, and then they, they'll tell you like, oh, this thing was included because it's an ad. Like I'm curious to see how Google ends up doing it and whether they follow the same, the same path, in which case, you know, maybe we're seeing a bit of consolidation around a, a certain user experience for generative search. But uh, yeah, lots, lots left unexplored still in this space. Right. And this, uh, just to be clear, is still being rolled out to select testers, although I think the idea is to pretty much roll it out to everyone. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I, w- I would say it's pretty exciting. There was a lot of kind of concern that Google is falling behind and ChatGPT will just eat, eat its lunch or whatever and, <laughs> and Bing will replace it. But, you know, if you're looking at augmenting search and, you know, this what people said Google was missing out on, which is using these uh, AI technologies to go beyond what's there already. I think we're doing a pretty reasonable job of trying to augment the usual search experience with AI where it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, that's it for this section. We will have fewer stories this week because we do need to go fast. Next up, we have applications and business, starting with China's ByteDance has gobbled up 1 billion NVIDIA GPUs for AI this year. And that's kind of a story that they have bought uh, this, again, Chinese tech giant ByteDance has bought 1 billion uh, in NVIDIA GPUs, which is about... 100,000 units uh, of pretty advanced NVIDIA GPUs. And this, yeah, is just showcasing, I guess, how not only American tech giants are in this, let's say, race or, or sprint to expand AI, but also, of course, in China, it's very much also the case. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a, a special pressure in China to kind of hog these units, these GPUs, because of the export controls that the US government has imposed on China. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that's happening right now is ByteDance, like Andre just said, which is the, the creator of TikTok, the company behind TikTok. Um, they're kind of going like, whoa, we're about to get hit by a bunch of export controls that are going to make it literally illegal for NVIDIA to sell us their cutting edge. Um, well, certainly they're, they're cutting edge H100s, but uh, also their A100s uh, very soon. And so we got to hog as many of them as we possibly can. Apparently, by buying this $1 billion worth of GPUs, they've already purchased like the equivalent of what the entire Chinese market ordered from NVIDIA in 2022. So like this is a spaz, this is a a convulsive fit essentially of the Chinese GPU economy trying to like grapple with what's happening with these export controls. And so, so just to put a little context here, uh, you know, we talk about the different kinds of GPUs that are being sold here. Uh, NVIDIA has a ridiculously powerful 
new kind of GPU called the H100, the Hopper 100. And the United States Department of Commerce has said that it is illegal for NVIDIA to sell those units as such to China. So NVIDIA literally had to invent a variant of the H100 called the H800. And essentially, this is a, a variant that is almost as powerful, except that the interconnect between GPUs, essentially that the communication bandwidth between GPUs, uh, is a lot weaker. And it's designed to prevent people from putting together huge clusters of these GPUs uh, in the way that you need to make a powerful foundation model. And so essentially, you know, they're, they're now in a situation where they're like, we've got to hog all the hardware we possibly can. Uh, you know, NVIDIA is complaining about this. It looks like they're going to lose like $400 million, they claim, due to these export controls that hit in September, it looks like. So uh, this is all part of the kind of geopolitics of the semiconductor hardware supply chain, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, anyway, it's, I think, a really interesting economic convulsive fit that's happening right now in China and uh, that will have effects on the prices of uh, of GPUs over there, no question. For sure, and uh, it's interesting also that these nerfed H800 cards only started production in March this year. So right. they really had to deliver them fast, and probably they just don't have that much in stock. This might be an order that kind of gobbles up most of the supply. And you know, even if they're nerfed, these are still very powerful. The price is you know, above $10,000 probably, uh, or in that range. So uh, yeah, if uh, if you're wondering why NVIDIA has such a large <laughs> share price these days, this is part of the reason. Yeah, and, and it's also like kind of tying into this whole question of when is the US making the right move in imposing and kind of flexing its geopolitical muscle here, right? Because like one of the one of the things that this is doing, these export controls, is it's it's stimulating domestic investment in China into high performance computing. And, you know, that's going to take a really long time to pay off, but it, it kind of is like, you know, when the US uses the fact that the US dollar is like the global reserve currency to you know, impose sanctions on Russia and things like that. It's like, yeah, you know, you can do that. You can get away with it. In the short term, it gives you an advantage. But over the long term, you kind of cause people to want to get off the American boat. So China turns to domestic semiconductor production um, and, uh, you know, and, and like countries reorient around currencies other than the USD. It's, it's kind of like all part of that same calculus. You know, how do you trade things off at the geopolitical level? And actually, so this is all related to the next story as well, which is inside China's underground market for high-end NVIDIA chips. So we just finished talking about how there are all these export controls and it's either already illegal or about to become illegal to sell NVIDIA high-end GPUs to China. Um, well, it turns out that there's already an underground market for these GPUs, including GPUs that it's currently legal to sell. It's kind of like this like gray market thing starting to take shape, uh, especially around these NVIDIA A100s. These are like the workhorse GPUs of current foundation model pushes. Um, most work gets done on A100s today. It's going to be transitioning to H100s down the line as companies upgrade. Um, but these things, I think, Andre, you mentioned earlier, like they were selling for $10,000 a piece on the kind of regular market. Um, they're not going for like $20,000 on this kind of like gray, dark market. So this desperation to kind of anticipate some of the, um, some of the regulations that are about to come in uh, is really, really setting in. Yeah, yeah. And so this is a bit of a almost surreal story of... 
having this underground market where you have to discreetly, you know, go and ask, can you get me this GPU? And these are like app developers and startups and researchers and, and gamers and even potentially some authorities having to go to this sort of not quite legal or formal route to get to these uh, chips, which again, is just showing kind of a state of things. Uh, and yeah, you, you're going to be paying like $20,000 for something that you can get for less here. And I actually just looked it up for H100s, which are these, you know, really top of the line things. Also because of the demand for them, there's it's not necessarily easy to get and you could have to pay as much as $40,000 on just an H1000 unit. And that's, um, you know, that's for one GPU, that's essentially, you know, one computer you can think of. So yeah. it's it's crazy banana times now and everyone needs GPUs. Yeah, and, and the, the lengths people are going to. So they were talking in the article, this is a quote from it, that says uh, that the Chinese vendors said they produced, sorry, procured the chips primarily in two ways. So the first was snatching up excess stock that finds its way to the market after Nvidia ships large quantities to big U.S. firms. So you got big U.S. firms in China that buy huge amounts of chips from Nvidia, and maybe they have a little bit of extra, and they kind of like play with that or importing through companies locally incorporated in places such as India, Taiwan, and Singapore. So because it's illegal to ship stuff to China, you've got like kind of companies setting up offices or, or getting set up formally in you know, third-party countries that it's legal to ship to, and they're basically skirting around the export controls by using those intermediaries. So we've seen all kinds of efforts uh, on the part of Chinese vendors to, or companies to get around these export controls. And this just seems like like the latest, you know, that they're also talking about how fraud has become an issue. So you've got a lot of refurbished, basically shitty chips getting passed off as top of the line or close to top of the line NVIDIA A100s. And so it's just, you know, everything you'd expect, I guess, from, <laughs> from the current market conditions. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of amusing. If, if there's a documentary about this AI boom, then you can have a little chapter about the shady markets of GPUs <laughs> that end up happening. And let's go to the lightning round. First story, we have OpenAI plans app store for AI software, the information reports. So OpenAI is apparently planning to launch a marketplace for developers to sell their AI models built on top of uh, ChatGPT or uh, GPT. So that's pretty much the idea. So far, ChatGPT and the plugins have been free, or you could pay that plus tier for ChatGPT, but that's about it. Now, if you build an AI application, it sounds like you could directly, you know, through OpenAI's platform, offer it as a paid product. Yeah, my understanding from the article was that they like basically allow you to, you know, use GPT-4 or whatever, fine tune it on your own data set, and then sell access to your fine tuned model that, you know, has benefited from specialized data that might be proprietary. Uh, to other parties, so basically creating like that app store, and it's a really interesting concept. We, I think, a couple episodes back, we talked about how usually, you know, a fine-tuned model is actually going to be best to solve any particular problem you want to solve. Like, there's usually a fine-tuned model rather than a generalist model that's like been specialized and can do that better. But finding that model 
is the hard thing. Like it's really, there's so many of these specialized fine-tuned models and finding the right one for your task is the bottleneck. And in large part, the reason that people end up going for general purpose models instead. And so this, you know, if OpenAI can solve for this, for search and kind of discovery and aggregation of fine-tuned models, yeah, this could be pretty big. It's kind of, uh, kind of cool. And boy, does OpenAI ever ship. I know. And I kind of do wonder if Hugging Face is going to jump in on this because they do have already right. a model hub, right? So they've been delivering models for developers for a while. And yeah, I could see them you know, adding the option to have paid access. Who knows? Good point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, not just a one-horse race. Next, AI human voice clones are coming for the Amazon, Apple, and Google audiobooks. So that's what we've said, I think we covered maybe this a little bit in the past, where now you have AI narration, which can be used to create audiobooks, right? And the audiobook industry has been growing quite a bit. And now, of course, part of the pro uh, production there is recording, which is time consuming and maybe quite expensive. So now uh, all these companies are making it AI powered. This seems like a great time to humble brag that I recently recorded an audiobook for Quantum Physics Made Me Do It, which is out in fine bookstores everywhere. Um, no, but actually relevant, though, because in that process, it was very, very clear that it is like painfully expensive to produce audiobooks. And like, like I, I spent like 16 hours, I think it was like 20 hours in recording booths, like super, super like difficult environment, your, you know, your voice is in pain and all that stuff. So like they were talking in this article about exactly that, the fact that it's such a lift to do this. And one of the cool things that seems to be happening too, is there's this like um, clustering of opinion in the community of these paid hired contractor uh, book readers. And some of them are intentionally staying away from projects that allow their audio to be used to train models. And then others are actually leaning into it. They're taking active steps to get their voices cloned so they can earn passive income. And you can kind of see like that. I mean, it reminds me of like kind of Grimes versus uh, I think it was Drake or something like in the, the different mm -hmm. approaches they took to AI generated music in that case. But it, it's kind of cool. Like it's not clear where the ball's going to land, what unions are going to, what, what role unions are going to play here. Um, anyway, kind of a cool story. Yeah, and again, it's kind of crazy to think that AI-generated voices are good enough now. It it used to be yeah. even half a year ago that it would be obvious, and now it's still a little bit obvious, but it's getting there. It's getting there. Yeah, they talked about like the speed, the pacing, and the comedic timing that, that's still kind of off, and you know you can sort of see why the AI would have to understand that a joke is being told to kind of get the timing right and all that. But yeah, it's coming. Next up, we have Hugging Face and AMD partner on accelerating state-of-the-art models for CPU and GPU platforms. And essentially, we've got so Hugging Face, which is kind of a repo of open source models. You know, Andre mentioned them earlier, um, and they have an interest in making their models easier to run. And for that, they need partnerships with hardware platforms. And AMD is just that. They're a hardware platform, kind of a, well, a competitor to NVIDIA along a lot of different axes. And one of the things they say in this article is that their initial focus is going to be on ensuring that the, the models most important to their community work great out of the box on AMD platforms. So they want to work closely with AMD's engineering team to work on key models and deliver 
optimal performance thanks to the latest AMD hardware and software features. And there's a funny disclaimer as well at the bottom of the article, which says this post is 100% chat GPT free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and this also plays into the commercial side of Hugging Face. So Hugging Face has been for a long time, sort of like a, I don't know, community resource in a way or platform for people to share their models, but also they have right. been developing the business side of using their platform for serving models. So for some of these models that are on Hugging Face, you can actually deploy them on servers and use them in a more scalable way through their service. And right now, that's pretty much being powered by different cloud providers like AWS or uh, not Google yet, but a couple others. So I could see them trying to maybe go beyond just using the existing cloud things and have some of their own compute, which is where the margins would be much nicer. So uh, yeah, interesting to see where we're going with this. And speaking of cloud, the next story is AWS announces Generative AI Innovation Center. So that is a program that they are creating to help customers build and deploy generative AI solutions. AWS is investing $100 million in the program, and that will connect customers with AI and machine learning experts to help them create generative AI products. Like I mentioned, I think the margins for AWS for people using their GPUs are quite nice. So I can <laughs> see them really wanting more people to build stuff with generative AI. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that when you read this announcement, it kind of reads like they're standing up a, a sort of consulting arm. Like that that was my read. They're all about, yeah, connecting, you know, outside people with their internal experts. And it's obviously like the um the 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 play is not the play. Like it it's it's not really about making a consulting business, obviously. Andre's uh, to Andre's point, right? It's like Where's the biggest margin and how can we use this as a sales channel really to help people get to the product that has the crazy margins and, and that really is the cloud stuff. Um, yeah, so it's because you need these pretty you know beefy GPUs, the costs are large. Uh, they add up uh, for these generative, like machine learning in general, you know, you, we've had large models, but for image classification, stuff like that, it's gotten relatively affordable. These things, the most recent things are still quite, you know, <laughs> hefty <laughs> and they re-rack up costs pretty quick. And next we have Inflection debuts its own foundation AI model to rival Google and OpenAI LLMs. And so this is a company called Inflection. Um, just some background, they were co-founded by this guy, Mustafa Suleiman, who was one of the leaders of DeepMind and left in like kind of complex circumstances, like a pseudo scandal, if I remember. I can't remember the details, but uh, their mission is to create personal AI for everyone. So really like a personal assistant. And they're calling this model Inflection One. It's They say it's roughly of GPT 3.5 quality. So kind of chat GPT or the free tier uh, in size and capabilities. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, their, their claim is that they're working towards even more competitive models at the kind of GPT-4 level, but it seems like what it's missing right now is uh, coding ability. So apparently it's really good at common sense reasoning, but just gets bested by GPT-4 at coding in particular. Um, so uh, it's apparently expected to publish results for a much larger model that will be comparable to GPT-4 and like POM-2 in, uh, in the near future. 
Yeah, I think we've maybe chatted about this uh, previously a little bit that their uh, model here is called Pi, your personal AI. And uh, yeah, you can now actually play with it online. You can add it to your messaging app. Uh, it's pretty impressive how quickly they do this. It does cost still millions of dollars to do these sorts of things. So um yeah, <laughs> clearly they are well funded, and hopefully, you know, we'll see if uh, they can actually keep things free for us for a while. Yeah, I'm always curious with these like upstart kind of competitors to the big labs that don't clearly have backing from a large cloud service provider. Like, you know, how long are you going to be able to to compete when compute is such a key input? And uh, you know, what does that mean for their their future profitability? Obviously, we've seen other companies like Adept. For example, and Cohere um, sort of try to break into this space. I think Adept might be struggling a little bit there. Cohere sort of unclear. So yeah, another another one to add to the mix there. Yeah, it's and if you want to try it, uh, you can go to HeyPi HeyPi.com, or actually you can send this uh, HeyPi.ai Instagram account a DM, a chat that way. You can also get in touch with Pi on Facebook Messenger and via text. So uh, that's kind of cute that they are not just going over a platform. You can actually just directly chat with it via messaging, which I don't know that I've seen. And next section, projects and open source. We only have one story this week, imitation models and the open source LLM revolution. So this is a fairly detailed little summary of a bunch of stuff that's been going on. As we've been covering for months, I, I think, right? There's been this big move with open source language models that's been ongoing at least since mid-March, I feel like. And one of the topics that this uh, covers is how it is much easier to create these open source language models by taking the closed source language models uh, and generating the data for training an open source model by uh, using the closed source thing like GPT-4. So you can have GPT-4 you know, create some dialogues for you and then I can serve as retraining data for uh, the open source version. And that makes it much easier to just build your own or at least fine tune your own open source language model. Yeah. And one of the things they talk about in this story, uh, story in this uh, research uh, paper here is I think something that we've touched on quite a bit. And I was glad to see it finally like really called out uh, this idea that there are all these open source models that people say are competitive with take your pick, chat GPT, GPT-4, whatever. Um, but they, what they don't actually say is, well, they are competitive with those models, but only on the specific task that we fine tune them for. And so this, this um, kind of article or, or uh, yeah, this article breaks things down into the idea of like, you could imitate say GPT-4's GPT performance broadly, in which case you would actually have a, G, a genuinely GPT-4 level system or local imitation is another possibility. And that's a more narrow thing that we've actually seen these models pull off. And so essentially the claim here is, you know, on narrow evaluations, you know, maybe you can claim that you have some of these open source models, the Vicunas, the Alpacas, and so on, actually do resemble, you know, GPT-4 or ChatGPT. But you know, more generally, they're going to struggle the minute that you 
you know, focus them on a different task. And one of the things that seems to keep coming up over and over again is that the factuality of these models actually goes down often with the fine tuning. So you take a, an open source model like Llama, you fine tune it on, you know, GPT-4's outputs, let's say, and you train it to do instruction following in that way. And what they're suggesting is that you will generally find the factuality of your fine-tuned model will go down. It'll get worse at things that it isn't explicitly being fine-tuned for. And so, you know, you might find that there's this wide ability to recreate open source variants of proprietary models, but ultimately, you know, it has this issue that you're not generally making a system that's generally as competent, and there are serious, serious issues that crop up, including factuality. Yeah, this post is really a, a fairly detailed summary of a whole topic, and it goes into a particular paper with false promise of imitating proprietary language models in some detail. So this was released a month ago and basically you know, examined this more rigorously of can we actually replicate the performance of a closed source model? And again, here it's fine tuning on top of uh, things that GPT-4 outputs not training from scratch, but even in that, it's a little more questionable than it initially appeared. But you can actually use this, uh, and it would work well. So it's it's uh, unclear. It looks like maybe the stuff we've been doing so far hasn't been that uh, as good as we thought. There are still cases where imitation is useful, and it's just generally a topic that we are learning more about, as with many things related to language models. Absolutely, and I think it is the a good counter argument to the you know there is no moat thesis that we covered a few weeks back, right? Where people were saying like, look, OpenAI and DeepMind and all these labs are going to be in trouble because people can just you know use imitation learning to copy their proprietary models in this way. You know, maybe maybe in narrow applications, but very much seems in this case that that's not generally true. And um, yeah, I mean, the economics of this are still shaping up, so we have no idea if this is going to be like the it factor for the space. But something to watch for sure. Up next, we have our research and advancement section, and we're kicking it off with AIs trained on other AI output will start producing junk within a few generations, scientists warn. And so this is a, a popular kind of press article that's really translating um, a paper. It's based on this paper that's called The Curse of Recursion, which was uh, co-authored by a bunch of UK academics and Canadian academics. And basically the central question behind this paper is, what will happen to GPT-5, GPT-6, and so on, once large language models are contributing a lot of the language that's found online that these things are being trained on essentially like the snake is eating its own tail and like gpt5 is being trained on you know maybe mostly text that was written by systems like gpt4 and one of the things that they find that is pretty remarkable is that as you make more generations of models and you train them on the outputs of previous generations the models start to converge on really kind of bad behavior, they start to uh, essentially produce text that um, th that has far fewer rare words, let's say, in it. So just to take a, a brief step back, you know, a language model really is kind of like a text autocomplete system. It's just trying to guess the most likely next word in a sequence of words, and, and that's what it'll try to spit out. In the process, what you find often is that these language models like to play it safe. 
they they like to bet on very likely next words, but sometimes that means that they overbias towards words that appear very frequently in a kind of training corpus. And so when you stack these on top of each other, one generation plays it even safer than the previous one, and eventually you start to see these things kind of losing coherence. And generation over generation, they start to output stuff that's just like kind of garbled nonsense. And there's a really cool example in the paper. They show this kind of output that's, you know, the first generation of a model, it produces this great output about architecture. It says something like revival architecture, such as St. John's Cathedral in London, the earliest surviving example of revival architecture is found in the 18th century, blah, blah, blah. And then generation after generation, it gets kind of worse and worse. And by the end of it, it says like architecture period. In addition to being home to some of the world's largest populations of black at sign dash at sign tailed jackrabbits, comma white at sign dash at like it's it's just this really weird garbled thing. Um, and it it it's a warning shot essentially. We've got a kind of pollution going on here. AI generated content is already finding its way you know into online news at scale. And it looks like about 49, uh, there are 49 news sites, according to NewsGuard, that are entirely written by AI already. So when you start to stack these things on top of each other, you you start to worry about the future generations of of large language models and and what they'll end up learning. Yeah, exactly. So this is a pretty important topic uh, for AI as we deploy it at scale. It's also true for image models, not just for text, actually. And... Yeah, it's it's another one of these topics that feeds into just what will the internet in general be like now that a lot of stuff will be AI, you know, is it just going to be lots and lots of endless seas of content that are all kind of the same? And it also plays into this topic of, uh, you know, being able to tell if something is AI generated or not, right? Because we've been talking, right? We are worried about deep fakes and kind of um, the verifiability of information. Potentially, if we actually solve that problem, that solves this problem. Yeah, very true. And, and actually, you know, it's funny, the, the, the idea of detection is also like intimately tied into the story too. Um, one of the things that people have used to detect AI-generated text is like the fact that these AIs play it safe means that they tend to use rare words less frequently. They have a less quirky way of talking than humans do. There's less variability. And so it's kind of funny that that, like, which was heralded as a great solution to AI-generated text detection, is now kind of part of the problem in training these systems to hold on to performance generation on generation. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And next article, kind of a exciting title, gpt 4 <laughs> secret has been revealed. Uh, mm. So this is pretty much almost a rumor. It's not exactly a fact, but it's been generating a lot of discussion. Basically, for a long time, people have been wondering, you know, GPT-3 famously is 175 billion parameters or something like that. It's a gigantic model. And for a while, everyone was expecting things to continue being bigger is better. So, you know, there were these memes on Twitter of some people saying GPT-4 will be 1 trillion weights or whatever. And we didn't really know when when OpenAI released a paper also famously, they didn't include any details about the model, or including its size. Now, 
I think last week there was some sort of, I think, podcast uh, clip that was released where uh, someone with some inside information supposedly disclosed that GPT-4 is maybe uh, pretty much a mixture of eight different models where each one of them is 220 billion parameters. So, you know, if you loosely speaking, it's more than one trillion parameters. Really, it's more like you have eight uh, 220 billion parameter models that are combined to make a better output. So this just kind of uh, resulted in a lot of discussion, speculation, and uh, yeah, I guess was, was very interesting to a lot of people in the AI world. It, it was, and uh, you know, I gotta say, I mean, I, so I'm a big fan of the the author of this article. I think an important caveat is that he has in the past gotten a rumor related story wrong he was actually the i think i think he might have been the guy i want to make sure i get my my facts right but i'm pretty sure he was the guy who came out and said that thing about hey gpt4 is going to have 100 trillion parameters guys and that turned out to be wrong you know in this case it's a little bit different because we have uh, george Hol- uh, i think hots who was the founder of a self-driving car startup who leaked that this might be the case that actually it was um, not one big model, but rather what's known as a mixture of experts model, which we'll talk about in a second. And there were a bunch of other people, including a guy at PyTorch um, and, uh, and and Bing, uh, who kind of corroborated. So, you know, it does you know, take it with a grain of salt, but it, it, we have quite a bit of corroboration here. Um, I, I'm not so sure I agree with the framing of this article. Uh, the, the article is framed like, Look, um, it turns out that GPT-4 is less impressive than we previously thought. Why? Well, because it's based on a mixture of expert strategy. And this is something that's been around for a long time. And uh, it wasn't invented by OpenAI. And and kind of that sort of thing, and it's all being turned into a marketing push. Um, You know, OpenAI didn't invent the Transformer. Uh, The idea of the Transformer was around like, as of 2017 and arguably earlier in different forms, like I just don't see why if we were supposed to be impressed by GPT-4 as a scaled monolithic transformer, we're now all of a sudden supposed to not be impressed now that we know it's a mixture of experts model, which, you know, just as a brief aside, like a mixture of experts or MOEs is a legit kind of interesting engineering accomplishment. And I think a more recent paradigm too, you know, the way this works is rather than having a single model, that choose every input and is responsible for every output, you have one layer at the bottom of your model that starts by reading your input and then deciding which of, in this case, eight different uh, models to route it to. And those models kind of do become experts in particular areas. So you can kind of think of that base model as deciding like, oh, you know, this is a sentence about French cuisine. So I'm going to send it to my you know, French cuisine expert model or my my restaurant expert model. And so you kind of get specialization within the architecture of the model itself. Um, you still train it end to end. It's just that not every part of the model sees every input every time because of this routing process. And, you know, this this was still a breakthrough thing. I think it is more recent. It, it's a, it, you know, not necessarily more cutting edge thing, but it's another another strategy. And if it is true, it just shows, I think, that OpenAI is flexible. They're not sticking with this monolithic transformer setup. And, uh, you know, I mean, like it's, I don't think it's quite fair to look at this and say, well, GPT-4 was just a dressed up bit of marketing. Objectively, GPT-4 blew people away and we still have these amazing capabilities 
It's just that the underlying model isn't the scaled monolithic transformer that you know we were t- kind of expecting. I, I just don't know that it's like yeah, all marketing. Let's say. Yeah, and I think honestly, from a technical perspective, it's not surprising. Like yeah, in, in like just we compute the supercomputer necessary to run a one trillion weight model in any sort of fast way. It's just this this is not too surprising like it's a standard approach and if you have to think of like okay we need to scale but we also need to be able to run it and train it this would be one of the sort of obvious things to try let's say and that's not to say this is disappointing that's to say that this makes a lot of sense and really this whole thing of is it one trillion parameters? Is it bad? Blah blah. It, it's it was always a bit of a not an interesting discussion, I would say. So yeah, now we know, and uh, maybe this will further people's interest in making other mixtures of experts models. We'll see. Totally, and, and you know, it was actually predicted. Like I remember talking to some people, I think including Barrett Zoff, who was one of the co-authors of the original mixture of experts paper, and like their prediction was, yeah, I think like we're going to move away from the monolithic transformer and towards mixture of experts model with scaling just as like Andre, like you said, because instead of feeding every input to every part of your neural network, which costs a lot of compute, like that's a very compute heavy thing. Now you only need to activate one small part of your network for every input, the spec, the, the part that specializes in like that say topic space very roughly. And so, you know, it's quite possible that this signals that OpenAI is actually ahead of the curve and realizing like, hey, you know what, you know, Anthropic may be still working with monolithic transformers and, and you know, Google too, who knows, like there's realistically, there's, there's a mix there too, but, um, but we're, we, you know, we're going to make this bold bet. So I don't know, mm. uh, you know, not, not to rip on the author. I think it's an interesting point. I just, I don't know that I personally buy it. Yeah. Maybe from a PR perspective, I could see it, you know, saying you have a one trillion model uh, parameter model i guess sounds cool but i guess from a more technical perspective uh not too hugely surprising and and makes a lot of sense really and on to the next article we should all be worried about ai infiltrating crowdsourced work that actually goes back a little bit to this whole uh, idea of ai being trained on ai data because researchers at epfl found that between 33 percent and 46 percent of crowd workers on amazon's mechanical turk are now using ai to do their work uh, and if you know about ai you know that mechanical turk has been used to create data sets for training ai models and therefore now we are getting uh by proxy ai to generate data for ai models to be trained on and as we just covered with uh, the previous story before this, that is an issue. Everything is totally, totally fine. Yeah, that's like that's one of the things, right? It's like it's so hard to tell what content is and isn't AI generated that we're effectively facing that risk without even trying to do it. So yeah, I mean, kind of, kind of bad. And there were researchers at uh, EPFL here who. Uh, found that between 33 and 46% of crowd workers on Mechanical Turk cheated uh, by using things like ChatGPT. So that, that's like not a small fraction. And yeah, that like that's going to affect your data set. Like I, I can't imagine that not having an impact, which is kind of 
say funny, but also really bad. Hmm. Yeah. That paper title, by the way, is pretty funny. It's uh, artificial, artificial, artificial intelligence. Crowd workers <laughs> widely use large language models for text production tasks. Uh, so yeah, they to do this, they conducted a case study and had to do this abstract summarization task. And through a combination of keystroke detection and synthetic text classification, found this range of 33 to 46. And of course, they can't necessarily be exact, but uh, it seems like a lot of crowd workers are now using AI and uh, could be a problem long term. Yeah. So up next, we have our policy and safety section, starting with good news. China and the US are talking about AI dangers. And so this is, um, it is good news, but it's also not maybe quite as good as the title makes it seem. It's not about like government to government conversations. It's about kind of academics and industry people in the US talking to academics and industry people in China about AI dangers. And so in the like language of diplomacy, this is not track one dialogues, which is government to government, but track two, which is kind of like where you have experts from both countries who are not necessarily in government talking to each other. Still good, not as good. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the key items of backdrop here is, of course, there is a lot of historical tension between the US and China on AI specifically, including the semiconductor export controls that we talked about earlier today. Um, the article calls out especially the, the head of the FBI who told the World Economic Forum in Davos that he's deeply concerned about China's government's AI program. Um, but essentially, the backdrop here is, you know, we've just had, as we've talked about on the podcast before, the 22-word letter, you know, from all these leading figures in AI warning that AI should be treated as a source of catastrophic risk alongside nuclear weapons and bioweapons. We had the six-month pause, pause letter, all these things. And, uh, and now we finally got Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, who you know has been part of this kind of uh, raising the alarm on AI risk, he went to China, gave a talk at the Beijing Academy of AI, which, like, very roughly speaking, is kind of like the Chinese version of OpenAI if OpenAI was an academic lab. So they're kind of focused on AGI type research, and apparently Jeffrey Hinton was there too. You know, one of the godfathers of uh, of deep learning, uh, Jeffrey Hinton. Uh, it has been making a lot of overtures to China specifically. And so this represents one of his big pushes uh, as he gets more and more worried about uh, about X risk. So yeah, I mean, you know, this seems good. There's like currently there is no uh, big red phone for nukes. Uh, so between the US and China, so, so that's something that did exist with the Soviet Union and still does as far as I know with Russia, where you know, the president calls the president and goes, hey, uh, that wasn't us, or like, like we didn't mean to to fire that whatever, and you know, you de-escalate things. There's currently nothing like that, even for nukes with China. Um, so you know, we probably should be thinking about that for AI as well. Uh, and so that, anyway, that's all kind of part of the how do we how do we thaw the tension here? And uh, the idea of these track two dialogues seems like a pretty good step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, as as more of a policy person, I wonder what your take is on Sam Altman being in China and what seems to me like this whole world tour he's been on. Right, he's of course talked to the U.S. Congress, he's been to the U.K., to a lot of Europe now, China. What what's kind of uh, Sam Altman's, I guess, mission here? Do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like maybe less of a a thing that I you know I, I wouldn't lean on my policy brain for just because I don't know what Sam Altman's thinking, but certainly one of the outputs of this worldwide AI safety tour that you know Sam Altman and and Demis Hassabis from DeepMind and and Jack and Dario from Anthropic have all been doing, you know, talking to Biden, talking to the Prime Minister of the UK, talking in India to, to leadership. One, I think one of the effects has clearly been to motivate these countries to take AI uh, catastrophic risk very seriously. And you know, Rishi Sunak in the UK, the prime minister there, did give the government a mandate to basically do something about the whole AI risk thing. Um, arguably, this has played into the urgency of this big AI safety summit that the UK is hosting and kind of taking a, a leadership position internationally on. So I think it's lit a fire under a lot of governments to do something. I think the big question is what is actually being discussed in those meetings, you know, how explicit are they being about AI risk? And there are a lot of disagreements between these different frontier labs about what should be done. Uh, you know, recently we've seen like Jack Clark at uh, Anthropic make this um, surprising to me comment that he doesn't think any kind of compute controls are a good idea. Um, I mean, I I personally disagree with that. I don't think that makes too much sense to me. I mean, if we if we think that that uh, the catastrophic risk arguments hold then surely some level of control over compute is required. And that does mean picking winners and losers. Um, but, you know, there are all kinds of things. And, and I know Sam Altman disagrees with, uh, you know, disagrees with Jack and he's testified in that way to Congress. So it's really unclear to me, like what the specifics are that they're trying to get out of these meetings, but surely they're jockeying to kind of be heard over each other as they ad- advance their respective policy positions, I'd imagine. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I was just looking this up and it's, yeah, it has been this whole uh, kind of world tour almost by Sam Altman in the past couple of months. He is visiting Toronto, DC, Rio, Lagos, Madrid, Brussels, Munich, London, Paris, <laughs> Tel Aviv, Dubai, New Delhi, Singapore, Jakarta, Seoul, Tokyo, and Melbourne to meet up with OpenAI users and developers. But it also seems like in many cases meet with policymakers. So I guess it's not surprising for industry leaders to be talking to policymakers who are trying to figure out what to do. Uh, and this is, yeah, just another case of that with China in this case. Yeah. And, and China, you know, I think Sam Altman has for a long time had an eye on them as a powerhouse in AI. I think it's undeniable. They have a lot of compute. They have a lot of talent, all those kind of key inputs to the AI pipeline. So when you think about the places that catastrophic risk might come from, could easily be a Chinese lab just as well as a Western one. And, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they have to be brought into the fold and, and you have to widen the conversation aperture to, to include them. Mm-hmm. Next article, five big takeaways from Europe's AI Act. So we've been talking about the AI Act a lot <laughs> this year and in the past couple of months because it seems to be coming very soon. It has been approved. I think it sounds like it may be actually passed into law by the end of this year. And this article uh, goes into that and and highlights some of the major implications of the law as it is. So some of these things that it highlights are a ban on emotion recognition AI. And there's been various uh, controversies surrounding companies that prefer to do this, for instance, for interviews. So this would be something that the law prohibits. There's also a ban on real-time biometrics and predictive policing in public spaces, another topic we've covered in the past. Uh, ban on social scoring, 
So that's clearly a big one. You may know that in China, there is a sort of social score system, and this uh, says not to do that. Now, maybe more present uh, concerns, there are restrictions on generative AI. So there's some proposal here. Uh, it's banning to use any copyrighted material in the training set of large language models, which is kind of a big deal. It's a big ask, yeah. I know. And then lastly, there's uh, there are new restriction on recommendation algorithms on social media. So recommendation systems are actually assigned as high risk, which implies many uh, kind of requirements. So yeah, some of the many implications of this act. Yeah, and I think one of the the big things too in this this article, you know, they frame the act and and all that, but they're also talking about the stage that it's at. Apparently, you know, what they say here is the EU Parliament just voted and voted overwhelmingly to approve these draft rules, but they are still draft rules. It's not legislation yet. Uh, so before they become legislation, apparently they've got to have they're kind of two two big stakeholder organizations that need to kind of give the sign off on this. So one is there's got to be debate at the Council of the European Union. And the other is the EU's executive arm, which is the European Commission. And so all three of these uh, institutions, like the European Commission, the Council of the EU, and the Parliament that just ratified this, uh, they all have, have kind of their own draft versions, which apparently vary a lot. And then they're going to have to find a way to like compromise this. So just it sounds like a pretty messy process, but apparently it's going to be about two years before the legislation is actually implemented, which you know makes makes you wonder like two years ago, where were we, were we in this space? And relative to the, the pace of progress in the technology, I mean, the absolutely glacial uh, progress that's being made on policy, I mean, it's just so slow moving. It's hard to imagine that we won't have a whole new slew of issues to deal with uh, at that stage. But either way, I mean, some good positive momentum, at least in, in this dimension. Yeah, it is a little unclear, I think, from that comment. It, it My impression is it's likely not going to take two years for the laws to be passed uh, once you have a free institutions talking about it. But once you pass a law, of course, you also right. need to implement it. There's a wait period. So even with this progress, given just the magnitude of what we're doing here, it's going to be a while until it actually impacts businesses. But on the other hand, it seems like it's going to happen in some form. And I would imagine companies in the EU and that interact with the EU more or less need to start getting ready and, and complying with regulations, even if they're not low yet, uh, kind of is almost, it seems inevitable. Yeah. I know. For, I remember when the GDPR came in, like at the time, like I was, I'd founded a startup and, you know, small, small team, or whatever. We were looking at the rules like six months out to be like, okay, like what do we have to do to, to make this all work? So that's your point. I mean, absolutely right. Like, a, you know, you gotta, you need some ramp up time so that you can actually, uh, actually meet the requirements. Mm -hmm. uh, next for our lightning round, we have President Biden meets with AI tech leaders in San Francisco. And this is a short one. It's basically just what it says. President Biden met with a whole bunch of people, including Tristan Harris, uh, who's at the Center for Human Technology, kind of a prominent AI safety figure. Uh, Fifi Lee, of course, the uh, at Stanford's uh, Center for, uh, sorry, uh, the co-director of Stan Stanford's Human-Centered AI Institute and very, very prominent kind of like key figure, pioneering figure in, in modern uh, deep learning, and a uh, bunch of other people at, at you know Berkeley and, and so on. 
at a Fairmont hotel in San Francisco. And so this is all just, you know, part of the massive policy and executive branch uh, level interest in the space. You know, it's like on the back of a whole bunch of, of, um, uh, of legislative moves. You know, we've talked about on the, on the show before, but uh, the White House also recently made big invest, like $100 million plus investments in uh, establishing a bunch of new AI research institutes and so on. So, you know, it's, it's all part of like trying to figure out who the stakeholders are, build relationships with the White House. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, I think about it. Yeah, that's pretty much the story. The White House Chief of Staff uh, has mentioned that these meetings, this and other meetings have been going on to discuss how to uh, be able to protect rights and safety as AI innovation happens, what sort of safeguards we want. So this is kind of in the quest to start working towards that. Next, we have kind of a downer article. Uh, yeah, it's uh, AI-generated child sex images spawn new nightmares from the web from Washington Post. So yeah, it's kind of, you can extrapolate the story from the article. Unfortunately, if you have uh text-to-image tools that are not censored, that you can train yourself, for instance, it is possible to create very bad images, including those of child sexual abuse. And that, of course, is bad by itself, but also having it makes it more difficult to track and identify real victims of this sort of thing. So, yeah, just another sort of outcome of having... uh, synthetic AI imagery, not even something I could have thought of, but I guess in hindsight, you probably could have seen us coming. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the tragic part of as well, the open source nature of a lot of these tools. And apparently that's what's being used predominantly here. Um, they, they quoted uh, Stability AI's chief executive or well, CEO, uh, Emad Mostak, who we've talked about previously on the podcast, but um, he was saying, basically taking this position that Ultimately, this is quoting him, it's people's responsibility as to whether they are ethical, moral, and legal in how they operate this technology. Adding that, quote, the bad stuff that people create will be a very, very small percentage of the total use. And, you know, this is maybe the part of the show where I go, okay, maybe a small percentage of the total use, but what about of the total impact? And I think that's kind of an open question at this point. You know, you can have a couple people uh, who misuse the technology, but you know, they can have very significant outsized impacts if they if they misuse it. And this is you know one of those cases. Yeah, you know, they're talking here about just the practical side, where if you see a photo, like a photo of you know child uh, sexual abuse or whatever displayed that, that's that's AI generated, like you as an investigator previously, you could have assumed that it was a real kid and therefore have launched an investigation. But now you don't even know if if it's real and worth investigating. And so the byproduct of that is you're going to be doing less investigating. And, you know, they're going to be false negatives where you just don't investigate some case because you might think wrongly that it's just an AI generated image, for example. And Apparently, it's like also triggered this debate about whether these images even violate federal child protection laws, just because they depict kids who don't exist. So, like, there's a whole bunch of you know rethinking that we have to do around laws and what applies and what doesn't apply. But man, like, what a ugh, 
what, what an awful thing to have to read. Yeah. Uh, the article does note that the Justice Department's child exploitation and obscenity section does maintain that AI-generated images are illegal under federal laws for this sort of thing. So I guess that's good. But uh, yeah, it's now <laughs> the state of the world and we are trying to catch up with technical solutions and I suppose also just institutionally uh, grapple with this. Everything's fine. Hmm. And on to synthetic media and art, our last section, uh, speaking of deepfakes and generated imagery, the first story is LinkedIn reveals AI image hunter that catches fake profiles. So LinkedIn says that it has developed an AI image detector that can catch 99.6 of fake profile images with a 1% false positive rate. And that's the headline, really. There's some motivations here. So for instance, it's good to create this fake LinkedIn profile integration to gain cross from Google and uh, just make LinkedIn more trustworthy in general. Uh, I know that, for instance, if you're a hacker or have some motions to attend, making a public LinkedIn uh, page to sort of create a fake identity is not... Uh, unusual. So there's various reasons you may want to create a fake LinkedIn page. And now with AI imagery, you can actually not even put your own face on it, uh, but also put uh, an image that cannot be traced to anything that exists. So you can we can think of different reasons why people would do this. And apparently, LinkedIn can now detect it. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, it, the plenty of motivation and plenty of usage. Apparently, they were saying they removed 21 million fake accounts in just the first half of uh, 2022. So like this is you know not a, not a small problem for them, certainly. And one of the things I thought was interesting was they, they were talking about how in these AI-generated images, one of the artifacts that apparently their model latches onto is the fact that the areas around the eyes and nose tend to be very similar from one AI-generated image to another, which was you know, kind of cool. It sort of makes you think of, um, of the language model uh, detection stuff, where it's like language models tend to overuse common words, underuse rare words in the text that they generate. This is sort of similar, right? It's like the, the same kind of more common eyes and nose features are replicated because those are sort of more, maybe more likely face shapes. You'd kind of think of it that way. So maybe maybe some of the same principles essentially apply to detection in, in those two domains. And anyway, it was kind of cool to see that laid out. Yeah, I do wonder exactly how they, what assumptions they make. Because if you do assume that it's all one model, it's all you know stable diffusion, then there is more regularity. But of course, if you are a hacker, you may just want to use a slightly different model and then this detector will fail. So certainly not a true solution to the problem of deepfakes, but uh, probably would you know handle a lot of cases for sure. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, I don't know. Uh, I'd be curious what you think about this on the vision side, but like, I just can't help but think that the arms race here is going to be lost by the detection side and like won by the generations. It's just like eventually we're going to be able to generate images that are indistinguishable from true physical images, and like any statistical signatures are going to are going to vanish as the models get better and better. Um, that's my guess, anyway. I mean, I. I I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I, I could see there being some technical solutions. For instance, for real photos, you're using a camera of some sort, right? So 
we could be able to watermark real images instead of AI images. Oh, right? yeah. Sorry, by, by watermarking for sure. I just meant like, you know, just looking at the photos themselves. Just looking at the photos themselves, yeah. yeah. It, it very well may be the case that it's impossible to just looking at an image, say whether it's one thing or not. Uh, at least if you don't know the source model, right? Right. And next up, we have the Reddit API blackout and the generative AI connection. And this is something that ties into a story that we've been tracking for a while now. And that's just like you're seeing increasingly these big social media platforms, these uh, news, news platforms, things like that, closing down and saying, hey, you know what? You can't just use like, hey, OpenAI, hey, Google, you can't just use our content to train your models. Like you're kind of stealing the value that we're creating and then selling it yourself. And so, uh, you know, as a result, Reddit announced, I think this was in April, that they would start charging third parties to access its API. And there are a whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of collateral damage that happens here because a lot of people are relying on that API and, and the free use of it. Um, you know, there are a whole bunch of business models that no longer make sense the minute you have to pay for access. And so we've seen a whole bunch of protests emerge as a result, uh, including a bunch of boycotts from various popular communities on Reddit. One thing that people seem to be doing a lot is they'll like mark a um, mark their content as not safe for work, uh, which makes it uh, just like uh, I'm trying to remember the consequence, but I think it has something to do with like you you can't access it uh, maybe for free or the same way. But this is like a, a popular protest. And um, anyway, there's a, a leaked internal memo from the uh, Reddit CEO, Steve Huffman, who basically said in the face of this pressure, like, look, we're not backing down, uh, which I think is kind of a testament to how existential this is for these companies. Ultimately, if they do allow people to freely scrape their platforms and their content, like it does become pretty hard for them to maintain profitable operations. Yeah. On the other hand, I do wonder about this in the sense that Reddit is kind of a social place, right? You go there to see what people post, put yourself, comment. And as with many of these sorts of websites, the money is primarily from advertising. And so sure, there is a very simple case to be made that, hey, these models are being trained from Reddit's data. Why are you getting our data for free? And uh, then it, yeah, you, the CEO has been making a case that the API charges need to be higher because of that. But you do have all these third-party applications and, and bots and so on that are part of the ecosystem that would uh, not be possible. So yeah, it's an interesting case study of how one service in particular with many users is shifting very, uh, I guess, aggressively in the face of AI and, and how maybe you want to be a little less uh, fast moving or a little more gradual in your adaptation. Yeah. Well, and I mean, one view on this too is like, you know, you, um, uh, you see the, the value of data going up, right? As, as these models get better and better and require uh, human generated data to do their thing. And in that world, essentially, this makes perfect sense. This is just like an economic reaction to the fact that back in the day, being able to like scrape a whole bunch of Reddit data didn't really make such a big economic difference. But but now, since it can be used in such an effective way to make these chatbots or whatever, 
all of a sudden it's like, Hey, yeah, I'm going to like, I'm going to charge you for access. And obviously Twitter kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And now for our last story, Grammys approve new rules on use of AI. And this is very simple. So recording economy, which does the Grammys has implemented rules that state that only human creators are eligible says that only human creators are eligible for Grammy awards. So no synthetic AI artist. Uh, you can use AI in the process of music creation, but you cannot be an AI musician to get an award. Yeah. And it, there are a whole bunch of like definitional questions that, you know, that you might have looking at this because they, um, you know, they, they talk about, so this is not like a complete ban on AI. They, they say that songs with AI assistance can still be submitted, but uh, apparently only the parts where a human creator was in the driver's seat will be considered for awards. So you're immediately thinking like, okay, how do you define driver's seat? And uh, AI voice clones themselves are not going to be eligible for awards. Um, but a human songwriter could still be awarded for the written compositions on songs that featured AI vocals, and a human artist can be eligible for their performance on a song that an AI algorithm wrote. So, it, like a lot of like kind of blurred lines, depending on how you define, you know, human in the driver's seat, AI assistance, and so on. It's just going to be really cool to see where the dust settles, and a lot of this is precedent setting in in ways that might not be super obvious like might seem trivial just the grammys but as more and more organizations have to grapple with this yeah i I could imagine some of this starting to uh set our our broader understanding of these standards into into motion definitely and it uh reminds me of a discussion we had i think several months ago already of that case where an ai generated image won an art award Right. And we also had a discussion of a photography image winning an award, right? And that was its own controversy. So maybe in this case, the Grammys are actually ahead of a curve <laughs> in, in actually having a policy as opposed to these visual arts. But yeah, visual arts, now also musical arts uh, have to contend with the fact that AI can be used to create art either you know, with the involvement of a human or, you know, make pr- primarily uh, most of the creation. And yeah, we'll just have to figure out what we make of that. And that is it for this slightly shorter episode than usual. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter of similar ones at lastweekin.ai. As usual, we would like you to review and share the podcast so we can grow our influence and be more famous and uh, <laughs> no, no, no yeah but we'll, we'll be back next week with a usual long episode or let's say longer I don't know how long uh, so be sure to keep tuning in okay